0: All right. We'll let the uh, whoa whoa, whoa. that better. Okay, we'll let the young people slip out the back as Miss Melissa's heading back there as well. us can be opening our Bibles to Hebrews chapter twelve. Hebrews twelve. We've been in Hebrews eleven the last few weeks, talking about the Hall of Fame of Faith and looking at several characters. If I'm not mistaken, <clears throat> there's about 18 people specifically mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 uh, that we looked at. And then, of course, there's some other people that are referred to, but their names are not given. Um, and so now we, we've moved out of chapter 11 and we move into chapter 12. And um, the first word in chapter 12 is wherefore. And whenever you see that, you realize you've got to go back to where you just were because now that all that had been said, something else is going to get said uh, in this upcoming passage. But I want you, before we look into the passage today, I want you to picture with me a gymnasium full of people and a basketball game. And uh, having been the administrator at two different Christian schools, uh, I spent a lot of my time in my life attending school basketball games. We went to a lot of them and uh, when we were at Ridgeview in the Shenandoah Valley we had a pet band that uh, we had started and my job I can't play a single instrument. My job was to haul all the equipment to every home basketball game. We didn't have our own gym we had a gym across town and so I'd load up my Suburban at that time with all the uh, all the equipment for the pet band and haul it to the gym, set it all up and then Joyce and all the people who can play instruments would play in the pet band while the, while the ball game was going on. But if you can picture a gymnasium full of folks and two teams have come to compete in a basketball game. And uh, as most games go, uh, one team is is favored to to win the game. They're a little bit stronger team. And for the sake of today's uh, illustration, we're going to call them the away team. The away team is the favored team to win the game. And uh, as the game begins to to take place, uh, the, the home team, the underdog, catches a few breaks and begins to close in on the score of the. Other team, and um, as that begins to happen, something interesting takes place. There's this shift of momentum in the stands. The people in the stands begin to yell and scream and act crazy, and uh, and, and and suddenly the the gymnasium becomes alive with people that are excited. and uh, And I've seen this take place many times over the years, where. Our team would be the underdog and all of a sudden something happens and people get excited and, and suddenly something else begins to happen. The, the players begin to feed off of that excitement. They realize all these people are yelling and cheering and screaming for us to, to, to take this game and take the lead. And so the players begin to feed off of that excitement and the next thing you know the underdog team suddenly pulls even and then suddenly pulls ahead and the people in the stands go crazy. Uh, you know, the people in the stands are called fans, sometimes fanatics, right? They go crazy, they're yelling, they're screaming, and, and the underdog pulls out the victory and wins the game. Now, I've sat in many of those games over the years that worked just that way, where we, where the team was the underdog, and suddenly they pull out the victory. Now, with that illustration in our mind, let's move into chapter 12. Chapter 12 says, Wherefore, seen, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. So the passage starts out, and, and obviously in Scripture times they didn't play basketball, but they had the arena, right? The arena where, where sporting games and sometimes gruesome games took place. And there were crowds that would come to witness at the arena. And their eyes would be on all those that were in the arena doing whatever they were doing. And so that's the picture we're getting here. And, 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 and it says, "See, we, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now let's look at a couple of the words there because it's important for us to understand. Um, number one, who are these witnesses? Who is this great cloud of witnesses? So we've got to break down the words in the original language. A cloud in the original language was describing a multitude, a dense crowd, or a great company of people. Now, chapter 11 mentioned 18 names. That's not exactly a great company, that's not exactly a great cloud of people. That's a very nominal cloud of people. So when the, when the writer here talks about we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, so the word cloud means a, we, brings a multitude, many people, and then the word great obviously means it's, it's much bigger than the normal crowd would be. It's a great crowd. So what the writer here is saying, is it's not just these 18 folks that were mentioned in Hebrews 11. I believe this great cloud of witnesses is those folks and all the other saints that have gone before us. This great company of people. It's a large company of people. Now, we have to ask ourselves a question. We are compassed about with this great cloud of people. Are they watching us? Now, that's an interesting question. And actually, I've read a lot of commentators this week. That is a question that is hugely debated among commentators. Because nowhere in this passage are we told that they are watching us. We're told we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. Some authors put it this way. I read one author this week. He said, he said I can't imagine if Charles Spurgeon was watching me preach this Sunday morning, what he would think about my preaching if he was part of that cloud of witnesses. I began to think about that, and boy, that was a humbling thought. And, uh, you know, I I wonder, so, so is he watching this world today? I don't know. We don't know from this passage. There's another thought with this passage is that this great cloud of witnesses surrounds us as witness and testimony for us. Not necessarily watching every move we make, but to be a testimony to us of enduring faith. We look to the great cloud of witnesses. We look to the 18 specific people mentioned in Hebrews 11 and a whole lot more to encourage us in the race of life. We feed off of them. Which one's right? I'm not going to tell you which one's right because I don't know, folks. And it might be both. They may be watching us, but at the same time, they are a testimony to us of of living and enduring and persevering difficult circumstances for the cause of Christ. But whatever the case may be, the writer here wants us to think about the fact that we have all these witnesses surrounding us. A spiritual testimony that surrounds us of men and women that have gone on before us and have lived faithful lives for the Lord. Their lives serve as a witness to us of persevering faith. Even in difficult circumstances, we got to the end of chapter 11, we of some of the difficult circumstances that these people of faith experience. The suffering, the torture, uh, the, the martyrdom that some of them experience for the cause of Christ. And yet, they are examples, witnesses to us of enduring faith. So we're, we're compassed about with this great cloud of witnesses around us, and what does He want us to know now? Well, He goes kind of back to the idea of the games. And look what he says. He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Now, don't get confused. We're talking two different things. A lot of people say, oh, every weight, sin is weight on you. you got to let go of the sin. That's two different terms there. He says, "Let, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us. So we need to understand that he's talking about two things here he's talking about laying aside a weight you know some things in our life are a weight to us in our spiritual race they're not necessarily sins they're not necessarily wrong things your job can become a weight to your spiritual life if your life comes so consumed with the job that you are not able to minister as Christ wants you to minister. It's not a sin. The job in and of itself is not a sin, but it becomes a weight in your life. And we have those things. They are things that take over the focus of what should be in our life. Not necessarily sins. Not necessarily bad things. But they get our eyes off of Jesus Christ. They cause us to lose focus in our spiritual race. And so the first thing he says is, listen, he says we need to lay aside every weight. Everything that, that, that causes us not to focus on God as we should needs to be set aside. Now listen, I have never ever been a runner in my life. I can tell you, I mean, I ran playing soccer as a kid in high school, but I am not a runner. But I've watched people that are runners. And back in the days when I was growing up, you know what a lot of runners would do to help make themselves run more quickly? they would tie weights on their ankles. Now, to me, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of because I don't even run without weights on my ankles. I definitely don't want extra weight added to my ankles. But I saw a lot of guys in high school that had these little strips that they would strap around each ankle and they would run with those in practice all the time. But when it came time to run the race, folks, they didn't leave the weights tied to their ankles. What they did was they took them off so they could run more quickly they practiced and practiced and had that weight but when it's time for the race the weight was laid aside the author here is saying listen we need to lay aside we need to lay aside the weights that beset us and the the weights that that change our focus in the race of life and then he says let us lay aside every weight And now he gets to the sin part. And the sin which doth so easily beset us. A besetting sin. So he didn't just say lay apart every weight and sin. He says lay lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. So what is he talking about when he's talking about a besetting sin? What is a a besetting sin? Well, Guzik, in his commentary, he points out that that word, besetting, can actually be defined with four different words. It can be defined as uh, easily avoided. It could be defined as admired. It can be defined as ensnaring. Or it can be defined as dangerous. So the author says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us sins that are easily avoided you know sometimes folks we sin and there was just really no reason for it. <laughs> we just we we knew better it was it was so easy to escape from it but we just did it anyway we do that some sins are admired there are, there are sins we enjoy <laughs> and we and we just sin because we, we enjoy them and uh, we know they're a sin but we're, we enjoy it anyway so we're gonna do it some sins are ensnaring habits that get a hold to you that you can't break that's some sins they're ensnaring and some sins are just dangerous some sins put us spiritually or physically in danger so we can look at them that way and and that would be a, a good thought you know uh sins that are according to guzik full of peril or the sin which so easily subjects one to calamity that's how he defines the besetting sin sins of peril full of peril or easily subjecting one to calamity. And that, that's probably a good definition of those things. Now, Barnes, in his commentary, he, he defines those sins as to the types of those sins, kind of using the same approach as Guzik here, the four definitions, but he puts it this way, and I, I thought these were really good. He says, the, those, he says these, these sins that beset us are besetting sins. He says, number one, are those to which we, we are particularly exposed by our natural temperament or disposition. You know, folks, some of us have a natural temperament or disposition. You know, um, my brother, bless his heart, he's worked hard on it over the years, but my brother can get really angry really quick. When we used to do ceramic tile work together, I always had to cut all the tiles because every time he'd cut a tile and it would break, he'd start throwing tile. I mean, tile starts getting chucked across the yard and stuff like that because because the tile broke and he'd get mad and angry. And so I did all the cutting because most most of the time I have a little bit calmer temperament. Not all the time, but most of the time. And so I would do all the tile cutting and just let him do the tile laying because the cutting was the more critical part, and he would get angry. Now, he's worked on that a lot of the years, and now he's probably a calmer person than me, but, uh, but his disposition, what his natural temperament was to get angry when something doesn't go my way. That can be a besetting sin. Then there's those in which we freely indulged before we were Christians. Maybe there was something you were involved with before you ask the Lord to be the Lord and Savior of your life and you have had a hard time breaking out from that sin. That sin still is a struggle for you. It's something that you did before you were saved and you have a hard time. You know, it's funny how it works. Some people get saved, folks, and they can just, every vice they had, they can just cut it right off. I mean, it's done. It's over. I got saved today. I don't do any of these things anymore. Some people. But folks, there's a lot of people that that's their besetting sin. And they struggle with it. Sometimes they struggle with it for years and years because it's something they did before they got saved and they just can't break it. That could be a besetting sin. Number three, those to which we are exposed by our profession, relations to others, or our situation in life. You know, some people, some people have sin in their life just because of where they're at in their life. They're struggling with something. Because of that, they, they fall into some kind of sin. And then number four, Sins to which we are exposed due to some specific weakness in our character. Listen, folks. Satan wants us to sin. And so he is going to find the weaknesses in your character and that's the bait he's going to throw out there in front of you. It's just like fishing. If the worms aren't working, then we switch to something else that will work. That's what Satan does in our life finds that weakness that character flaw we can be great in so many ways but then we have that one character flaw and what does satan do he keeps dropping bait right in front of it time after time after time see folks that can cause us to fall into what we say are a besetting sin now what i want us to notice here is this The author says, wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great, we have all these witnesses around us to draw strength from, from their lives. He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. See, there's a problem today in modern Christianity, and the problem is people who take the mentality of, I don't have to do anything, God does it all. Now folks, there's truth to the fact that God does it all. God is a great God. But the fact of the matter is, we have a responsibility of how we live our life. We live in a day and age where nobody takes personal responsibility for their actions. Watch the news just one night and you'll see that real quickly. Nobody takes personal responsibility for actions. But what does the author here tell us to do? He says, let us lay aside the weight and the besetting sin. That's our responsibility. That's my responsibility. I have to do it. I have to be willing to say this is wrong, this is not right, and I'm not going down that path anymore. That's my responsibility. I can't blame that on my parents, I can't blame that on my upbringing, I can't blame that on my youth pastor, the pastor. It's my responsibility to lay those weights aside. They can't lay them aside for me. I have to lay them aside. And that's what the author here is getting us to understand. We are running a race. We are running a spiritual race in our life, and we need to put aside <coughs> excuse me, we need to put aside the things that draw our focus away from the race we're running so that we can run the race as planned by God. And we know it's a race because he tells us that in the next part of the verse. He says and let us run With patience, the race that is set before us. Now what does the word patience there mean? Well, the word patience there is endurance. So he's saying, let us run with endurance. What race? What race is it? Is it the race I've planned for my life? That's not what it says. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Who planned the race for your life? God Almighty did. Race that he's chosen for you to run. It's not the race I pick, it's the race he picked. And he says, run it with endurance. Now, folks, I already said I don't like to run, but I want us to understand the Christian life is not a sprint. It is a marathon. It is ongoing. We don't sprint out for 15 seconds and then oh boy that was least I'm done now it's over I don't have to worry about the race anymore that's not how it works the race is a marathon it goes on and uh, you ever watch the Olympics and watch the marathon it's grueling just to watch it not alone, be in it. I mean, you, you turn the channel on and they're, they're, they're running around the track. Two hours later, they're running around the track. Four hours later, I'm not the track, they're running around the countryside. You know, ten hours later, they're, no, I don't know how long they run. But anyway, you know, it just goes on and on and on. It's grueling. But that's the race. And that's the race of life as well. The race of life is not one in one decision. It's won in a lifetime of decisions by enduring By enduring. That's what the author says here, the Lord's saying through through our writer here. He says, Let us run with patience, endurance, the race that is set before us. It's a determination, moving steadily forward. That's what we need to be doing in the Christian walk. We need to be running the race, laying aside the things that would distract us in the race. The things that are, are besetting sins in my life. The things that are not necessarily wrong, but they, they keep me from doing what the Lord wants me to do. And we can all plug things into there. Every one of us, it's probably a different thing. But if we're honest with ourselves, we would find that there are things that we do that, keep, that are not sins, but they keep us from accomplishing what God wants us to do. Maybe because they soak up our time. Maybe because they misuse the talents God gave us. Maybe because it just takes our focus off the cross. I don't know why. It could be any of those things. But we are to run. And the word in verse 1 here for race is an interesting word. In the Greek, it is the word for conflict or struggle. Conflict or struggle. When the writer here says, let us run the race with endurance, he's saying let us go through the conflict, war, battle, the race that God's laid out for us. He says let's go through this race (coughs) and this struggle as God wanted us to. 1 Corinthians. Let's flip over there for a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And verse 24. He uses the same word here. He says, "No, you run in a race. Run all, but one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run not as uncertainly. So fight I not as one that beateth the air, but I keep my body under uh, my body and bring it under into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others." I myself should be a castaway. Now notice what he says here. He says, "I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I. It's a fight. Paul says, that "The race of life, the race that God wants us to run, it is a battle. It is not just running a physical race, it's a conflict, it's a struggle. It is a battle. Paul talks about fighting in the battle. He talks about bringing his body into subjection. He guards himself so that he does not fall <coughs> Excuse me, into the wrong things. So as Paul starts out in this passage here, he, he, he lays out these things where he says, listen, we've got all these witnesses around us that we can draw strength from. We can look back to their lives. Isn't it wonderful how we can look back to the lives of characters in the Bible and, and gain strength from them but it's not just limited to the scriptures folks looking back to the lives of men and women that have gone before us that have accomplished something for God you read some of the some of the great great missionary stories and oh man you can gain such strength from those things People like Gladys Elward and, and uh, things like that, you, you, you gain strength by reading the stories of their life and what they accomplished for the Lord. People that seemingly were insignificant in this world, and yet they accomplished great things for the Lord. I wish I had written down the story today. I, I've read it many times uh, uh, about the story of, of the Sunday school teacher who, who, um, who, through his ministry, just as a Sunday school teacher, Billy Sunday was saved. And I think, you think, wow, Billy Sunday, we know that guy, man. He's a big name. I mean, we all know who Billy Sunday is. Probably not a one of us in here could name the Sunday school teacher that led up to his salvation. But see, folks, he's part of that great crowd of witnesses that we can draw strength from as we learn about these people and study these people. And so Paul said, listen, take in the great cloud of witnesses. Lay aside the things that beset you. Run the race that you should be running with endurance. And then he says this, He looks to the perfect example of running the race. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. How are we supposed to run? How is the race supposed to be raced? We are to lay aside everything that takes away our focus from where it should be. The besetting sin, the weight. And then we are to look where? At Jesus Christ. We are to look at Jesus Christ. Why? Because He was the perfect example. He wasn't just the perfect example. He was much more than that, but He is the perfect example of how to run the race. The the idea here, in the, the verb actually looking, the verb looking unto Jesus, the verb here is not simply just a looking at Christ, but it's a looking at Christ and it carries the idea of looking away from everything else. So in other words, when the author here uses this particular word, and this is why words are important, when he uses this particular verb, looking, he's saying, I want you to focus on Jesus Christ and don't focus on all this other stuff. That's what he's saying. So it really carries two ideas. One is the focusing on Christ, and the other is not focusing on all the other stuff. You know what the problem is, folks? We get it exactly backwards a lot of the time. We focus on all the other stuff, and oh, there's Jesus Christ off to the side somewhere. We get it completely backwards how it's supposed to be. He says we are supposed to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Spurgeon says this, he says, looking unto Jesus means life, light, guidance, encouragement, joy. Never cease to look on Him who looks on you. Jesus Christ is our life, our Savior, our God, our Master. He is the author and finisher of our faith. You ever think about that? He's the author of it. He's there at the beginning. And He's the finisher of it. He's there at the end. I love what the Scriptures say where it says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. See, folks, this is where our focus is supposed to be. Our focus is supposed to be on Jesus Christ. And we're supposed to take our focus off of all the other things that distract from that. Now folks, we understand that there's things we have to do in our life. We have to work. The Bible tells us if we don't work, we shouldn't eat. So, you know, we have to work. We have to go to a job. We have to do... There are things that are responsibilities in this life. But it's focusing our spiritual walk on Jesus Christ and not getting distracted from Him that's what it's about he says looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross Jesus Christ was joyful about the cross no he wasn't he, he said if it be thy will let this cup pass from me he wasn't joyful about the cross he was joyful about what came after the cross Because after the cross, what do we find Jesus doing? He is seated in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, having sealed our redemption. The redemptive work of God is complete. And so Jesus could see past the cross to the joy that was on the other side, the completion of the redemptive work of mankind. See, folks, what we have to learn to do is we have to look beyond the circumstances of today and look for the joy that comes down the road when we spend eternity with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He he was the author and finisher of our faith and and, and he, He saw what was beyond the cross. And so He endured. He persevered. Despising the shame. And is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, there was a lot of shame in being put on a Roman cross. There was the, the ridicule, the mocking, the beating, the disrobing, the I mean, the crown of thorns. You all the things that Jesus experienced were things that brought shame. And the verse says here, he, he, he endured the cross, despised the shame, yet because of the shame, even with the shame, He endured the cross. Why? Because He could see the joy beyond the cross. And what is He doing now? He is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The redemptive work of Jesus is done. He endured the shame. How many times as Christians do we not endure the shame because we're reproached because of Him? How many times do we back down as a believer because we're embarrassed or we're ashamed? Spurgeon spoke to this issue speaking boldly to shameful Christians of his day, and I'm sure it's a lot worse today. He said, what else you are cowardly about Jesus? I'm sorry. What else? A shameful thing it is that while you, were, while you are bold about everything else, you are cowardly about Jesus Christ. Brave for the world and cowardly towards Christ. That's pretty strong preaching. <laughs> he basically preached, listen, not he? You're, you're brave for everything in the world, but you're a coward when it comes to Christ. You're ashamed of Jesus Christ, yet Jesus Christ, despising the shame, endured the cross and is now sat down at the right hand of God the Father with our redemption complete. That's the joy, folks. The work is done. When Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. He wasn't talking about His life. He was talking about the redemptive plan of God. It was done. It was completed. Nothing else had to take place after that moment. The work was done. And salvation was available to all mankind. So folks, just two simple verses this morning. We have this cloud of witnesses around us that we can draw strength from. We need to take sins and, and, and weights in our life and cast them to the side. And we need to run with endurance the race that God has called us to run. That's what we're supposed to be doing as believers, all the while looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed as we come to the end of the message today. Two very simple verses. Very powerful. We have to ask ourselves today two questions I think of right from the start. Number one, do I have weights in my life that are weighing me down in my spiritual walk? Are there things that are taking my focus away from God? He calls us to lay them aside. And then what about the, the besetting sin? The sin that just, <laughs> just seems to have a, a hold on me and I can't get it out. I'm supposed to lay that aside as well. That's my responsibility. Let us lay aside the weight and the sin. My responsibility. Have I laid those things aside? And am I looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith? Let's stand with our heads bowed and eyes closed as we come to the end of the service this morning. Miss Judy just to play for a minute. Maybe the Lord spoke to your heart and you need a business with God. You can... Sit down, write your pew, and pray. The altar's open as well. We wait just for a moment this morning.